The Arabian Nights. The story of the envious man and of him who was envied. In a town of moderate size, two men lived in neighbouring houses, but they had not been there very long before one man took such a hatred of the other and envied him so bitterly that the poor man determined to find another home, hoping that when they no longer met every day, his enemy would forget all about him. So he sold his house and the little furniture it contained and moved into the capital of the country, which was luckily at no great distance. About half a mile from this city, he bought a nice little place, with a large garden and a fair-sized court, in the centre of which stood an old well. In order to live a quieter life, the good man put on the robe of a dervish and divided his house into a quantity of small cells, where he soon established a number of other dervishes. The fame of his virtue gradually spread abroad, and many people, including several of the highest quality, came to visit him and ask his prayers. Of course it was not long before his reputation reached the ears of the man who envied him, and this wicked wretch resolved never to rest till he had in some way worked ill to the dervish whom he hated. So he left his house and his business to look after themselves and betook himself to the new dervish monastery, where he was welcomed by the founder with all the warmth imaginable. The excuse he gave for his appearance was that he had come to consult the chief of the dervishes on a private matter of great importance. What I have to say must not be overheard, he whispered. Command, I beg of you, that your dervishes retire into their cells as night is approaching and meet me in the court. The dervish did as he was asked, without delay, and directly they were alone together, the envious man began to tell a long story, edging as they walked to and fro, always nearer to the well. And when they were quite close, he seized the dervish and dropped him in. He then ran off triumphantly, without having been seen by anyone, and congratulating himself that the object of his hatred was dead and would trouble him no more. But in this he was mistaken. The old well had long been inhabited, unknown to mere human beings, by a set of fairies and genii, who caught the dervish as he fell, so that he received no hurt. The dervish himself could see nothing, but he took for granted that something strange had happened, or he must certainly have been dashed against the side of the well and been killed. He lay quite still, and in a moment he heard a voice saying, Can you guess whom this man is that we have saved from death? No, replied several other voices, and the first speaker answered, I will tell you. This man, from pure goodness of heart, forsook the town where he lived and came to dwell here, in the hope of curing one of his neighbours of the envy he felt towards him. But his character soon won him the esteem of all, and the envious man's hatred grew, till he came here with the deliberate intention of causing his death. And this he would have done, without our help, the very day before the Sultan has arranged to visit this holy dervish, and to entreat his prayers for the princess, his daughter, but what is the matter with the princess that she needs the dervish's prayers? asked another voice. She has fallen into the power of the genius Maimum, the son of Dimdim, replied the first voice. But it would be quite simple for this holy chief of the dervishes to cure her if he only knew. In his convent there is a black cat which has a tiny white tip to its tail. Now to cure the princess, the dervish must pull out seven of these white hairs, burn three, and with their smoke perfume, the head of the princess. This will deliver her so completely that Maimum, the son of Dimdim, will never dare to approach her again. The fairies and genii ceased talking, 
but the dervish did not forget a word of all they had said. And when morning came, he perceived a place in the side of the well which was broken, and where he could easily climb out. The dervishes, who could not imagine what had become of him, were enchanted at his reappearance. He told them of the attempt on his life made by his guest of the previous day, and then retired into his cell. He was soon joined here by the black cat of which the voice had spoken, who came as usual to say good morning to his master. He took him on his knee and seized the opportunity to pull seven white hairs out of his tail and put them on one side till they were needed. The sun had not long risen before the sultan, who was anxious to leave nothing undone that might deliver the princess, arrived with a large suite at the gate of the monastery and was received by the dervishes with profound respect. The sultan lost no time in declaring the object of his visit, and leading the chief of the dervishes aside, he said to him, Noble sheikh, you have guessed perhaps what I have come to ask you. Yes, sire, answered the dervish. If I am not mistaken, it is the illness of the princess which has procured me this honour. You are right, returned the sultan, and you will give me fresh life if you can by your prayers deliver my daughter from the strange malady that has taken possession of her. Let your highness command her to come here, and I will see what I can do. The sultan, full of hope, sent orders at once that the princess was to set out as soon as possible, accompanied by her usual staff of attendants. When she arrived, she was so thickly veiled that the dervish could not see her face. But he desired a brazier to be held over her head, and laid the seven hairs on the burning coals. The instant they were consumed, terrific cries were heard, but no one could tell from whom they proceeded. Only the dervish guessed that they were uttered by Maimum, the son of Dimdim, who felt the princess escaping him. All this time she had seemed unconscious of what she was doing, but now she raised her hand to her veil and uncovered her face. Where am I? she said in a bewildered manner. And how did I get here? The sultan was so delighted to hear these words that he not only embraced his daughter, but kissed the hand of the dervish. Then, turning to his attendants who stood round, he said to them, What reward shall I give to the man who has restored me my daughter? They all replied with one accord that he deserved the hand of the princess. That is my own opinion, said he, and from this moment I declare him to be my son-in-law. Shortly after these events, the Grand Vizier died, and his post was given to the dervish. But he did not hold it for long, for the Sultan fell a victim to an attack of illness, and as he had no sons, the soldiers and priests declared the dervish heir to the throne, to the great joy of all the people. One day, when the dervish, who had now become sultan, was making a royal progress with his court, he perceived the envious man standing in the crowd. He made a sign to one of his viziers and whispered in his ear, Fetch me that man who is standing out there, but take great care not to frighten him. The vizier obeyed, and when the envious man was brought before the sultan, the monarch said to him, My friend, I am delighted to see you again. Then turning to an officer, he added, Give him a thousand pieces of gold out of my treasury and twenty wagon loads of merchandise out of my private stores and let an escort of soldiers accompany him home. He then took leave of the envious man and went on his way. Now when I'd ended my story, I proceeded to show the genius how to apply it to himself. O oh, genius, I said, you see that this sultan was not content with merely forgiving the envious man for the attempt on his life. He heaped rewards and riches upon him. But the genius had made up his mind and could not be softened. 
Do not imagine that you are going to escape so easily, he said. All I can do is to give you bare life. You will have to learn what happens to people who interfere with me. As he spoke, he seized me violently by the arm. The roof of the palace opened to make way for us, and we mounted up so high into the air that the earth looked like a little cloud. Then, as before, he came down with the swiftness of lightning, and we touched the ground on a mountain top. Then he stooped and gathered a handful of earth and murmured some words over it, after which he threw the earth in my face, saying as he did so, Quit the form of a man and assume that of a monkey. This done, he vanished, and I was in the likeness of an ape, and in a country I'd never seen before. However, there was no use in stopping where I was, so I came down the mountain and found myself in a flat plain which was bounded by the sea. I travelled towards it and was pleased to see a vessel moored about half a mile from shore. There were no waves, so I broke off the branch of a tree and dragging it down to the water's edge sat across it. While using two sticks for oars, I rowed myself towards the ship. The deck was full of people who watched my progress with interest, but when I seized a rope and swung myself on board, I found that I had only escaped death at the hands of the genius to perish by those of the sailors, lest I should bring ill luck to the vessel and the merchants. Throw him into the sea, cried one. Knock him on the head with a hammer, exclaimed another. Let me shoot him with an arrow, said a third, and certainly somebody would have had his way if I had not flung myself at the captain's feet and grasped tight hold of his dress. He appeared touched by my action and patted my head and declared that he would take me under his protection and that no one should do me any harm. At the end of about 50 days, we cast anchor before a large town and the ship was immediately surrounded by a multitude of small boats filled with people who had come either to meet their friends or from simple curiosity. Among others, one boat contained several officials who asked to see the merchants on board and informed them that they had been sent by the Sultan in token of welcome and to beg them each to write a few lines on a roll of paper. In order to explain this strange request, continued the officers, it is necessary that you should know that the Grand Vizier, lately dead, was celebrated for his beautiful handwriting and the Sultan is anxious to find a similar talent in his successor. Hitherto the search has been a failure, but His Highness has not yet given up hope. One after another the merchants set down a few lines upon the roll, and when they had all finished, I came forward and snatched the paper from the man who held it. At first they all thought I was going to throw it into the sea, but they were quieted when they saw I held it with great care, and great was their surprise when I made signs that I too wished to write something. Let him do it if he wants to, said the captain. If he only makes a mess of the paper, you may be sure I will punish him for it. But if, as I hope he really can write, for he is the cleverest monkey I ever saw, I will adopt him as my son. The one I lost had not nearly so much sense. No more was said, and I took the pen and wrote the six sorts of writing in use among the Arabs, and each sort contained an original verse or couplet in praise of the Sultan. And not only did my handwriting completely eclipse that of the merchants, but it is hardly too much to say that none so beautiful had ever before been seen in that country. When I had ended, the officials took the roll and returned to the Sultan. As soon as the monarch saw my writing, he did not so much as look at the samples of the merchants, but desired his officials to take the finest and most richly caparisoned horse in his stables. 
together with the most magnificent dress they could procure, and to put it on the person who had written those lines and bring him to court. The officials began to laugh when they heard the Sultan's command, but as soon as they could speak, they said, Deign, Your Highness, to excuse our mirth, but those lines were not written by a man, but by a monkey. A monkey? exclaimed the Sultan. Yes, sire, answered the officials. They were written by a monkey in our presence. Then bring me the monkey, he replied, as fast as you can. The Sultan's officials returned to the ship and showed the royal order to the captain. He is the master, said the good man, and desired that I should be sent for. Then they put on me the gorgeous robe and rowed me to land, where I was placed on the horse and led to the palace. Here the Sultan was awaiting me in great state surrounded by his court. All the way along the streets I had been the object of curiosity to a vast crowd, which had filled every doorway and every window, and it was amidst their shouts and cheers that I was ushered into the presence of the Sultan. I approached the throne on which he was seated and made him three low bows, then prostrated myself at his feet to the surprise of everyone, who could not understand how it was possible that a monkey should be able to distinguish a sultan from other people and to pay him the respect due to his rank. However, accepting the usual speech, I omitted none of the common forms attending a royal audience. When it was over, the sultan dismissed all the court, keeping with him only the chief of the eunuchs and a little slave. He then passed into another room and ordered food to be brought, making signs to me to sit at table with him and eat. I rose from my seat, kissed the ground, and took my place at the table, eating, as you may suppose, with care and in moderation. Before the dishes were removed, I made signs that writing materials which stood in one corner of the room should be laid in front of me. I then took a peach and wrote on it some verses in praise of the Sultan, who was speechless with astonishment. But when I did the same thing on a glass from which I had drunk, he murmured to himself, Why? A man who could do as much would be cleverer than any other man, and this is only a monkey. Supper being over, chessmen were brought, and the Sultan signed to me to know if I would play with him. I kissed the ground and laid my hand on my head to show that I was ready to show myself worthy of the honour. He beat me the first game, but I won the second and third, and seeing that this did not quite please, I dashed off a verse by way of consolation. The Sultan was so enchanted with all the talents of which I had given proof that he wished me to exhibit some of them to other people. So turning to the chief of the eunuchs, he said, Go and beg my daughter, Queen of Beauty, to come here. I will show her something she has never seen before. The chief of the eunuchs bowed and left the room, ushering in a few moments later the princess, Queen of Beauty. Her face was uncovered, but the moment she set foot in the room, she threw her veil over her head. Sire, she said to her father, what can you be thinking of to summon me like this into the presence of a man? I do not understand you, replied the Sultan. There is nobody here but the eunuch, who is your own servant, the little slave, and myself. Yet you cover yourself with your veil, and reproach me for having sent for you, as if I had committed a crime. Sire, answered the princess, I am right, and you are wrong. This monkey is really no monkey at all, but a young prince who has been turned into a monkey by the wicked spells of a genius, son of the daughter of Eblis. As will be imagined, these words took the Sultan by surprise, and he looked at me to see how I should take the statement of the princess. As I was unable to speak, 
I placed my hand on my head to show that it was true. But how do you know this, my daughter? asked he. Sire, replied Queen of Beauty, the old lady who took care of me in my childhood was an accomplished magician, and she taught me seventy rules of her art, by means of which I could, in the twinkling of an eye, transplant your capital into the middle of the ocean. Her art likewise teaches me to recognise at first sight all persons who are enchanted, and tells me by whom the spell was wrought. My daughter, said the Sultan, I really had no idea you were so clever. Sire, replied the princess, there are many out-of-the-way things it is as well to know, but one should never boast of them. Well, asked the Sultan, can you tell me what must be done to disenchant the young prince? Certainly, and I can do it. Then restore him to his former shape, cried the Sultan. You could give me no greater pleasure, for I wish to make him my grand vizier and to give him to you for your husband. As your highness pleases, replied the princess. Queen of Beauty rose and went to her chamber, from which she fetched a knife with some Hebrew words engraven on the blade. She then desired the Sultan, the chief of the eunuchs, the little slave and myself, to descend into a secret court of the palace and placed us beneath a gallery which ran all round, she herself standing in the centre of the court. Here she traced a large circle and in it wrote several words in Arab characters. When the circle and the writing were finished, she stood in the middle of it and repeated some verses from the Quran. Slowly the air grew dark and we felt as if the earth was about to crumble away and our fright was by no means diminished at seeing the genius, son of the daughter of Eblis, suddenly appear under the form of a colossal lion. Dog, cried the princess when she first caught sight of him. You think to strike terror into me by daring to present yourself before me in this hideous shape. And you, retorted the lion, have not feared to break our treaty that engaged solemnly we should never interfere with each other. Accursed genius, exclaimed the princess, it is you by whom that treaty was first broken. I will teach you how to give me so much trouble, said the lion, and opening his huge mouth, he advanced to swallow her. But the princess expected something of the sort, and was on her guard. She bounded on one side, and seizing one of the hairs of his mane, repeated two or three words over it. In an instant it became a sword, and with a sharp blow she cut the lion's body into two pieces. These pieces vanished no one knew where, and only the lion's head remained, which was at once changed into a scorpion. Quick as thought, the princess assumed the form of a serpent and gave battle to the scorpion, who, finding he was getting the worst of it, turned himself into an eagle and took flight. But in a moment, the serpent had become an eagle more powerful still, who soared up in the air and after him, and then we lost sight of them both. We all remained where we were quaking with anxiety, when the ground opened in front of us and a black and white cat leapt out, its hair standing on end and meowing frightfully. At its heels was a wolf who had almost seized it when the cat changed itself into a worm and piercing the skin of a pomegranate which had tumbled from a tree, hid itself in the fruit. The pomegranate swelled till it grew as large as a pumpkin and raised itself onto the roof of the gallery from which it fell into the court and was broken into bits. While this was taking place, the wolf, who had transformed himself into a cock, began to swallow the seed of the pomegranate as fast as he could. When all were gone, he flew towards us, flapping his wings as if to ask if we saw any more. 
when suddenly his eye fell on one which lay on the bank of the little canal that flowed through the court. He hastened towards it, but before he could touch it, the seed rolled into the canal and became a fish. The cock flung himself in after the fish and took the shape of a pike, and for two hours they chased each other up and down under the water, uttering horrible cries. But we could see nothing. At length they rose from the water in their proper forms, but darting such flames of fire from their mouths that we dreaded lest the palace should catch fire. Soon, however, we had much greater cause for alarm, as the genius, having shaken off the princess, flew towards us. Our fate would have been sealed if the princess, seeing our danger, had not attracted the attention of the genius to herself. As it was, the sultan's beard was singed and his face scorched. The chief of the eunuchs was burned to a cinder, while a spark deprived me of the sight of one eye. Both I and the Sultan had given up all hope of a rescue when there was a shout of victory, victory from the princess and the genius lay at her feet a great heap of ashes. Exhausted though she was, the princess at once ordered the little slave, who alone was uninjured, to bring her a cup of water, which she took in her hand. First repeating some magic words over it, she dashed it into my face saying, If you are only a monkey by enchantment, resume the form of the man you were before. In an instant, I stood before her, the same man I had formerly been, though having lost the sight of one eye. I was about to fall on my knees and thank the princess, but she did not give me time. Turning to the sultan, her father, she said, Sire, I have gained the battle, but it has cost me dear. The fire has penetrated to my heart, and I have only a few moments to live. This would not have happened if I had only noticed the last pomegranate seed and eaten it like the rest. It was the last struggle of the genius, and up to that time I was quite safe. But having let this chance slip, I was forced to resort to fire, and in spite of all his experience I showed the genius that I knew more than he did. He is dead and in ashes, but my own death is approaching fast. My daughter, cried the Sultan, how sad is my condition. I am only surprised I am alive at all. The eunuch is consumed by the flames, and the prince whom you have delivered has lost the sight of one eye. He could say no more, for sobs choked his voice, and we all wept together. Suddenly the princess shrieked, I burn, I burn, and death came to free her from her torments. I have no words, madam, to tell you of my feelings at this terrible sight. I would rather have remained a monkey all my life than let my benefactress perish in this shocking manner. As for the sultan, he was quite inconsolable, and his subjects, who had dearly loved the princess, shared his grief. For seven days the whole nation mourned, and then the ashes of the princess were buried with great pomp, and a superb tomb was raised over her. As soon as the sultan recovered from the severe illness which had seized him after the death of the princess, he sent for me and plainly, though politely, informed me that my presence would always remind him of his loss and he begged that I would instantly quit his kingdom, and on pain of death never return to it. I was, of course, bound to obey, and not knowing what was to become of me, I shaved my beard and eyebrows, and put on the dress of a calendar. After wandering aimlessly through several countries, I resolved to come to Baghdad, and request an audience of the commander of the faithful. And that, madam, is my story. The other calendar then told his story.